Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of That's What People Do. You are joined by me, Ryan McGowan, and as always, James Kay. How you doing today, buddy? I'm okay, Ryan. I'm okay. I'm on the come down of a good time and it's really cold, so that's where I'm at. How are you? It is. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. It is bitterly cold now. It's really starting to come into its own. Um, you, you mentioned you're on a come down. Uh, people realise, or should remember at least, uh, that you've just been on a trip to Italy. Yeah, I have. So how and was now that? Now I'm sat in England, so I'm sad. Um, it was fucking incredible. What a beautiful country. Beautiful people, beautiful food. Architecture stunning. History amazing. It's just so great. I just found myself most days just walking around. Obviously I have my stuff that I wanted to do, but then at the end of every day I'd just be walking and there'd be interesting things to go and see. I'd be like, oh, that's really cool. Um, it was quite romantic, I suppose, me being there by myself. Um it, yeah, it was just fucking great. I did all of the touristy things, all the stuff you want to do in Rome, Florence, Naples, Pompeii, what have you. And now I go back to work tomorrow, so I'm quite sad about that, to be honest with you. Kind of just <laughs> coming to terms with it. Yeah, I mean, people, uh, if you if you keep up with us on social media, we, uh, we were pretty quiet in terms of putting stuff out, just because we could let James just put out stories and posts and whatnot himself, as he as and when he went. Um, so some people will have seen you be somewhat com com. What's the word I'm looking for? Complative, com- contemplated, or complative yeah, yeah, yeah. in Pompeii. In Pompeii, yeah, Pompeii was probably my favourite day. I spent six hours just walking around. It's like if you, if everyone ever gets the chance to go, just go. It is the most amazing place. I wouldn't. Naples is great. Like you can either stay in like Sorrento or by the Amalfi Coast or Naples. It depends what you want. Sorrento is a lot more chilled. It's where Limoncello comes from, so it's fucking amazing. The food's good. Um, it's very picturesque on the coast, whereas Naples is very loud, chaotic, but it does have the best pizza you'll ever have. 
So it depends what you want to go for. Um, mm. But yeah, Rome, recommend that to everyone because Rome is Rome, isn't it? Like, it's one of the best I mean, cities in you, the world. You sent me you sent me a couple of pictures whilst you were out in Rome and I was stunned to see, like, just buildings built on top of ruins, like, actually it's integrated wild. into the ruin. I was thinking, like, someone looked at this ruin and was like, it's a pretty good foundation, I'll just build on that. <laughs> yep. Just ancient Roman ruins just there and people walk past it like it doesn't even matter. But all the water system and the sewage in Rome is still what they built in ancient Roman times because it's that it good. Really? There's absolutely no need to change it. That's incredible. It's just that they, they just they made it to last and fucking it's lasted. Yeah, it certainly has. Um, and you, you mentioned that one of the big things you were really looking forward to was having a pizza in Naples. Yeah. How, how was it? Did it live up to expectation? Right, so whoever is on our Patreon, is going to get to see me, like, it's basically a bonus clip at the end. I do the documentary, and then the last clip I'm going to put in is me having this pizza. And to say it's watching a man go through stages of euphoria would be an understatement. <laughs> I, I didn't realise pizza could be like that. For me, pizza's just pizza, isn't it? It's something you eat quickly, and it's just kind of cheese, tomato, and a, and a base. But, oh my lord, I've never tasted anything like this pizza. I would go wow. back to Naples just for this pizza. If anyone's ever seen Eat, Pray, Love, it's the pizzeria where Julia Roberts eats. That's where I went. And Christ, it was an experience. It was almost emotional. Um, wow. And then we come back to England and it's just... I was in Sainsbury's yesterday just looking at all the food. I was like, this is just not it, is it? <laughs> um Excellent. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Uh, for, as you hinted there, uh, you filmed quite a lot of your journey out there and that is going to be put together and put out on Patreon for people to watch yeah. uh, James May, Our Man in Italy. Uh, yeah, I haven't started <laughs> editing it yet and I, I'm going to do it next week. I'm dreading it because at no point have I like referenced anywhere where I was or what I was doing. I'm just It's <laughs> in just chronological order of me filming things. So I'm going to have to try and throw it together somehow. But i got a lot of footage, so... Yeah. It should. Yeah. It should. Um, I, how, how it's going to edit together, I don't know. But it should be decent, I think. Nice. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And I'm sure many people are. So if, if at all you are interested in, in seeing more of James's experience in Italy, uh, yeah, by all means, do head over to our Patreon, subscribe, and that will be coming out soon. We have got a few things coming up there. Uh, least of all James's uh, visit to Italy, but uh, my visit into Auschwitz, which will be mm. coming up in uh, January to coincide with uh, Holocaust Memorial. Um, so that oh, will be happening. Yeah. Um, right. Now, uh, the last episode, uh, just before you went away, we were discussing the trailer for the hotly anticipated movie Napoleon. And we were, uh, we were discussing whether we felt uh, movies have a duty to portray historical films accurately mm-hmm. and uh yeah what's what, what what came about from that was me making a promise that i would make a historically accurate uh telling of the life of napoleon mm. and i almost regret it <laughs> there's a lot so... to do isn't there and i think that's the trap that the film fell into that there's a lot to do yes and we will talk about that later on um so Let's get into it, shall we? Let's start uh, as we mean to go on. Um, right. Last episode, we discussed whether a movie has a duty to be historically accurate in its telling of stories. Unfortunately, we've had to agree to disagree on the outcome. 
The movie in question that sparked the debate was the eagerly anticipated Napoleon, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix. Now, at the time of writing, the film isn't out yet. The trailer is the only thing we can go on, which is interesting. The purpose of a trailer is to entice a potential audience into watching your movie. Generally, you'll see big fantastical explosions or tense moments of an actor looking serious at the camera. It's all about showing some of the best bits of the movie and promising many more if you watch. We've done it here on TWPD. We have trailers for our video content on Patreon with the same goal as a movie. We want you to be interested enough to just take a look. Now, was this whole introduction just an elaborate plug for the Patreon? No, but it got you thinking about it, didn't it? The point is, a trailer is a talking point. It can spark conversations with friends who then go on to take it onto a podcast to share with their audience. And in the case of Napoleon, it encouraged many historians to take to social media to slam the trailer pointing out all the historical inaccuracies they could find. So, as someone who believes that movies should tell a historically accurate story, we're going to do what Ridley Scott didn't do and tell the story of Napoleon properly. <laughs> now, for a slight disclaimer, uh, this is likely going to be egg on my face, but I do feel what I'm about to do is correct. We have covered the lives of many a people, most of whom who have done one great or bad thing in their life. These ones are relatively easy episodes to write. We build up to a particular moment and then we round it out. Done. But when it comes to people like Churchill, Hitler, Gandhi, Christ, even the origins of the Mormon church, it's very difficult to cover everything. So with that being said, don't be surprised if I miss out parts of Napoleon's life, maybe a particular battle or him visiting some party. Whilst this is an episode about Napoleon, we cannot cover every single thing he did in his lifetime. This is not a show specifically about his career and everything in it. So why do I mention this? Because I don't want people to equate us missing things out to being the same as Ridley Scott deliberately making things up. I think there is a key difference between me deciding to leave out a particular meeting with some nobody rather than implying that Napoleon was a witness to the beheading of Marie Antoinette because he was not. If I leave things out, it's likely for two reasons. One, I don't think it's particularly relevant or benefits the telling of our story. Or two, I probably couldn't find too much about it and I really don't feel comfortable talking about something I just know nothing about and there's no point in me lying. Mm -hmm. So, with that being said, let's get on with it. <laughs> what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> now, despite the fact that we associate Napoleon with being French, many are surprised to learn that he's actually of Italian heritage. He was born on the 15th of August 1769 on the island of Corsica. He was the second son of Carlo and Letizia Bonaparte. He was born at a very interesting time in Corsican history. Corsica was an island close to mainland Italy, only 56 miles away, which meant that for the majority of his existence, it has been in some way or another an Italian island. In fact, by the time of Napoleon's birth, it had been a part of the Republic of Genoa for around five centuries, meaning that most people, despite identifying themselves as Corsican and speaking a Corsican dialect, also spoke Italian and often travelled to the mainland for work or to live. Now, by the time that Napoleon was born, Corsica was at the tail end of an independence revolt against their Genoese overlords. They'd even gone so far as to declare themselves a kingdom and then subsequently a republic. Now, Genoa believed that this fight was just not really worth it, so straight up sold the island and its rebellion to France for them to deal with, and they did. 
1769, the year of Napoleon's birth, the French invaded to claim ownership of their new impulse buy. But they were met with resistance, as is to be expected. The rebellion was led by a man named Pasquale Paoli, a vehement patriot. Of his followers were Carlo and Letizia Bonaparte. They backed the independence of Corsica and were very much a part of the rebellion. In fact, it's said that Letizia fought whilst pregnant with Napoleon. How true that is, I don't know. I can't imagine some, like, ready to burst at the seams pregnant ladies, like, still carrying a rifle on her back or something. I imagine what likely was to happen is... Bear in mind, she already has a kid, so Napoleon has an older brother at this point. He has quite a lot of siblings that I have not mentioned, like Ridley Scott. <laughs> um... <laughs> He's got he's got quite a lot of siblings. She already had a child, so I imagine they were like, "Look, we can't. We've got two kids on the way. We can't. Let's let's just fucking get out of here." Now the rebellion was not to last. When Pascal Pauli fled the island and was exiled in Britain, Napoleon's parents gave up their fight. They saw the writing on the wall. Letizia was pregnant. They were a minor noble family, and really, they saw an opportunity. Carlo Bonaparte was a lawyer by trade and used his influence to cozy up with the French and the French saw a useful ally in him. Carlo and his family were spared. They would be free to live their lives in relatively peaceful manner, having discarded their Corsican flag for a French one. Now, as I mentioned, the Bonapartes were a relatively minor noble family. So far as I could find out, they, were, they had a noble background in mainland Italy, but that had waned over time, and then they moved to Corsica. So if they were around today, I think we'd put them in the upper middle class bracket. They'll not come mm. under much trouble. There's always food on the table. There's always going to be a roof over their heads. They're okay. They're comfortable. Especially when you're cozying up with your French overlords. Mm. See, the Bonaparte family had embraced the French way of living, so much so that they looked at having their children enrolled into French schools. In fact, Napoleon's mother was particularly pally with a French governor, and she'd managed to persuade him to get Napoleon enrolled into a military school in mainland France called Brienne-le-Chateau. Oh, uh, like our Joan of Arc, there's a few French pronunciations in this, so Just get ready for going. those. Yeah, and there's at least one Italian pronunciation in this, oh, so wow. enjoy that. Yeah. Now, this school wasn't the best of the best. In fact, it was described as being the most mediocre of the 10 academies in France at the time. But it was a recognised military academy that, for Napoleon's parents, meant he would get a half-decent education and have prospects. More than could be said of other Corsican children at the time. Now, it was likely a tough experience for young Napoleon. He was in a foreign country that is now officially his own, but he was most definitely not a Frenchman. The other boys in the school made that very clear. He was a foreigner and he was not accepted. In fact, he was nine years old when he first went to school in France and could not speak a word of French. He spoke in a very thick Corsican accent that attracted bullies and he was a rather lonely boy. Because of this, he wasn't one for socialising much. In a school report, it was noted that he was poor at dancing and art but gifted with mathematics and history. I think that gives us like a really good indication of, you know, what he was like as a kid. This is not very a, academic. Yeah, he's he, like he's not going to get involved. He probably doesn't have many friends. He doesn't hang out much. But what he does do is just sit in his room and read. Like, yeah. And that's that that makes him what he is. Because as well, you have to think right at this point. Uh, we'll get onto it in a minute. But there's like there is a class structure in France at this point, and he is not part of it, and he never will get in it because of where he's born. 
So like you've got all these other kids who are from like very well-to-do families. They're looking at this kid and being like, who the fuck are you and why are you here? And they don't yeah. care whether he like that upsets him or not. Now, this natural gift for mathematics prompted his teachers to steer him towards the artillery branch of the military. After five years in school, aged 15, Napoleon graduated and moved to a more prestigious military school called École Militaire Paris. It was a rather prestigious school, one that required an intensive exam to gain entrance. In fact, Napoleon passed with flying colours and his nomination was even signed by King Louis XVI, which is uh, foreshadowing, I suppose, in a way. That's quite funny, to be fair. Yeah, it is quite funny. It's ironic, isn't it? Um, mm. I think was as well is uh, to point out like how intelligent this boy is, right? So artillery at this point in time, you've got to be really fucking smart to know what you're doing because it's not yeah. just like throw a big cannonball in a cannon, just fire it. You need to know elevation points. You need to know about trajectories, how things work like that. You need to know maths, numbers, all this kind of stuff. Um so like the the lads that knew this stuff were like oh, these guys are smart get them in the artillery like you've got to be in it so this, mm. this boy is, is he's seriously intelligent now time was not on napoleon's side whilst at school his father died meaning that he couldn't afford to pay for the two-year course instead of seeing an obstacle napoleon saw a challenge he finished his schooling in one year and left with a commission as a lieutenant in the Lafayre artillery regiment which is pretty good going. Um, mm. I wouldn't have done that. I'd be like, ah, oh, I guess I'll have to drop out then. I'll do drama instead. <laughs> I mean, we both fell into that trap. We could have been in the artillery regiment, but here we are. We could have been so smart. Yeah. He was stationed at a place called Valence, where he spent a lot of his time training and reading. Things were going okay for Napoleon here. He'd gone from a Corsican subject with little prospects to a respected officer in one of the finest militaries in the world at the time, second only to the British. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I'll be damned if I let the French have that kind of credit over us. I'm just not having it. We're not. <laughs> this is a no, show. No, they're, they're never going to have it. I don't. <laughs> the French will never have anything over us. This is. Uh, we're not a very French friendly show, apparently. But do you know what? I looked at our stats since we've moved over to ACAST, which is about two months. We've had uh, 60 listens in two months from the entirety of France. So France can f off. <laughs> but hello to those 60 people. Hello. But I bet you're not we, even I French. Mean, a bit. We all know how this story ends. So gonna, <laughs> we'll, we'll flex that when we get there. Yeah, there's a lot of flexing, I'll be honest, and there's a lot of, like, you know, just kicking a dog while it's down. Uh, anyway, but what Napoleon didn't know was that he was an officer in an army of a country that was a tinderbox and was about to explode. The French and the English have been sworn enemies for centuries. So long, in fact, that for a time, it's likely that nobody even know why we started to hate each other in the first place. We just did. In fact, there would be times, I imagine, of peace where a bunch of noble lords sitting about bored, having polished off their fine buffet of foie gras, would simply sit and say, I'm bored, should we go to war with France? And then they would. <laughs> In fact, I can even imagine there was a moment of hesitation at the outbreak of World War I, when the English found out that they would be allied to the French. <laughs> either way, <laughs> either way, the French were looking over at the Channel of England, playing with its vast empire, and was likely jealous. And that is factual, I promise. That's not me shitting on France. France had an empire, is true. It was not as big as the British Empire. It's just a fact. That's not me shitting on France. The French could not contort their faces anymore. 
They wanted to bite the arse of England and saw a golden opportunity over in the New World. Oh, how they likely laughed when they heard stories of English colonies in the Americas rebelling against the English. Wouldn't it be funny if we backed the colonials in their fight against the bastard English? Oh, ha ha ha, the look on England's face when they see us supporting their rebels. But what the French maybe didn't realise was what it was exactly they were backing and how it would almost directly lead to a world-ending event for them. Now, if there's one thing we all know about America's leadership is that it is run by a president, not a king. The Americans once had a king. He was called George III, but the Americans got pissy when he asked for rent money, so they denounced him. The French were actively backing a Republican cause, something alien to that nation, having been a monarchy for over a thousand years. In fact, the French spent so much money helping the Americans gain their independence from the English that they left themselves pretty much broke. The figure is somewhere in the region of 1.3 billion livres, which is a that is massive... That's really hate someone, isn't it? Right, this is... I, I, I remember I messaged you when I was writing this part of the script and I was like, this is so funny. The, the the French hate the English so much, this is to what extent they went. They spent 1.3 billion livres, which in today's money, I, I tried to figure it out. I can't convert livres into today's euros. It's very tricky. So what I did is I used the Great British Pound. So 13 billion pounds back in 1780s money. Just have a guess. What do you think that's worth? So it's 13 billion back then. 13 billion back then. You're looking at, I don't know, well over 100 billion now, surely. More. So 13 billion back in 1780s money is worth 2,877,488,189,868 pounds and 13 pence. Nearly 3 trillion. Now... A billion is hard to uh, to sort of visualise, right? So to try and help like contextualise it more, there is 1,000 billion in just 1 trillion. And now I learnt this fact about 10 years ago. If you had, James, 1, just 1 billion dollars and you spent $2,000 a day, you couldn't spend it in your lifetime. That's how much a billion is, right? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, right? Now, to to say how much a trillion is, if you were to add up the net worth of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg, you will only be just over halfway to one trillion. That's how much money is. And the French spent nearly three of that all just to throw the middle finger up at English. That's how much they hated us. I respect the pettiness, to be fair. (laughs) You've got got to respect it. You've got to respect the pettiness. It's absolutely hilarious. So, what does three trillion buy you? Well, a massive headache. The French were left in such a desperate state economically, King Louis knew that the only way to try and recuperate such a loss was to raise taxes. Now, this was the standard way of monarchs finding the cash to fight wars. In fact, it was part of the reason why we established a constitutional monarchy to stop sentient incestual beings from raising taxes whenever they liked. But the French didn't have this in place. The king could raise taxes on a whim, but not everyone paid. The French had a weird class system called estates. 
The king was on the top and could declare taxes. Below him were the clergy and the nobles, the first and second estates. They didn't have to pay taxes. Now below them, the everyday people, peasants, merchants, lawyers and people that just make the country what it is, they were the third estate and they were the ones who had to pay taxes, not only to the king but to any of the nobles who then decided to raise their own taxes too. You could tell why people were pissed off. Right, see this is it. When they were done squeezing the common people, there was quite literally nothing left and people didn't like it. Especially when you learn that you're in such a fucking financial pickle because you were involved in a war that has nothing to do with you. Or because you hate the English. And also, it, it, it seems really silly that he's raised taxes and he, what he, but the people who were fighting for him were fighting their war against a king who was raising taxes. Did he not go, hold on, if I do exactly what the English were doing, people are going to turn on me here. See, it's almost like you can read my script because then literally the next paragraph says, then you start hearing tales from Frenchmen coming back from this newly independent America going on about how they rebelled and got rid of their king for declaring unfair taxes on everyday people. How cool is that, that you can overthrow a king for declaring unfair taxes? But that would never happen here, would it? A few moments later... He was silly. He was silly. <laughs> he was silly. So, yes, that's right. The French Revolution was underway. Now, for Napoleon, based in the southern regions of France at the time, he likely didn't see too much at the start of the French Revolution. In fact, he probably didn't really give a shit because Napoleon is harbouring a secret. He may have been a French subject all his life and spent the last decade of his life living in France, speaking French and in the French military, but at his heart, he was still a Corsican, and he had dreams of an independent Corsica, a Corsica that rebelled against its French overlords, and he would use his French military education to help them win that fight. So, whilst the French Revolution's kicking off, Napoleon, for some odd reason, is spending quite a long time going on holiday back to Corsica. And now, I find that such a weird thing to do, the only thing I can liken it to is, you know, it's Christmas at the moment. Well, it's, it, it's, we're in the run up to Christmas. Work mm. is always busy for everyone, you know. And imagine going up to your employer at the busiest time of the year and going, do you mind if I just take three weeks off? <laughs> like, they'd be like, yeah. no, absolutely fucking not. This is kind yeah. of like that. The revolution's there's, there's, kicking off. There's always one dickhead in every workplace, though, who has somehow managed to book off the entire Christmas period. And no one knows how they've managed to do it but they've done it. Mm, mm, yeah. I, I, I remember whenever I'd start a new job and they'd go, oh, make sure you let us know how many holidays and stuff you've got before you start so we can get it booked in. I'm like, oh, actually, I've got most of December off. <laughs> yeah, I'm going away to see family abroad all of Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, yeah. So I've actually only worked one or two Christmases in my decade or so of being in the workforce. Oh, okay. <laughs> Now, the leader of the rebellion when Napoleon was born, Pascal Pauli, had been exiled in the UK for decades before coming back to Corsica to reignite his rebellion. Now, Napoleon was hoping to join him, wanting to ride the wave of the French Revolution. He met with Pauli, hoping to unite the revolutionary French army that he was a part of with Pauli's rebellion army. But they say you shouldn't meet your heroes, but unfortunately no one told that to Napoleon. When he finally met Pauli, hoping to join his cause, Pauli turned his nose up at the upstart officer in French uniform. 
he declared that his father had been a coward and a traitor to the Corsican people for not continuing the fight, and by extension, so was Napoleon. He was also firmly of the belief that Corsica should be a monarchy with a king, something that Napoleon was kind of against with his revolutionary army. So they were never going to see eye to eye. Now, let's just take a second to look at that, right? Napoleon is sent to a foreign land at the age of nine for schooling. He doesn't speak a word of French, and when he arrives, he feels like an outcast for over a decade. He never quite fits in. All the while, he's just dreaming of returning back to his homeland to liberate it from the French. And then when he finally returns home, he tries to get involved in local politics, he genuinely cares about his home island, and he meets with a man that he thinks is going to help secure that independence. And then that man tells him to do one. Like, how annoying must that be that you're not even accepted by your own countrymen at that point, let alone this new country that you you live in? Like, that must have been a bitter pill to swallow. You'd feel very lost, wouldn't you? Yeah, like, what, what, who, who am I then? Like, yeah, where do I belong? Yeah. So, having been rejected by his hero, Napoleon decides to go all in with France. He tried to fight for his home, but his home didn't want him. At least the French saw his value as an officer, and he was really starting to get on board with this whole revolution thing. Oh, and at this point, here comes the Italian. Uh, he changed his name, so we know him as Napoleon Bonaparte. His name is actually of Corsican, right? He's got a Corsican-sounding name. Uh, so in Corsica, his name was Napoleone Buonaparte. That sounds that's, a lot better. It sounds cool, right? And it sounds very Italian. But obviously, that was probably half the reason why everyone was like, they just can't get on board with the fact that Napoleon is now, you know, French. And they're, like, yeah. they're constantly looking at him being like, no, you are, you're a foreigner. Look at your name, Napoleone Buonaparte. Like, <laughs> I bet he had the piss taken out of him. So yeah. he, he changed it to make it sound more French, giving it the style we know today as Napoleon Bonaparte. Now back in France and newly promoted to captain, Napoleon was in a weird situation. He was part of the French military, but there were different loyalties here. There was no like centralised military, so to speak. The French had established a constitutional monarchy with their revolution, which was cool. Um, and in fact, this newly established National Assembly were drafting up a new constitution for France and still believed at the time that having a king as head of state was necessary for stability. So part of the military was run by this brand new National Assembly representing the Republic of France. You've then got like this Royal Guard, which is like a separate army that's loyal to the king and they're very royalists. But then you've got those that defected from both of those and lots of other militias around the place. And they see themselves as joining up with the radicals called Jacobins. And these guys want to completely abolish the monarchy and just establish a republic. That's it. No king. No nothing. These are the guys that win out. Um, Napoleon was keen on the revolution. I don't really think for um, any true belief in it. Uh, I just think he agreed with some things in, in, to an extent. I think realistically what he saw was just an opportunity to elevate himself. So... Mm. I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, he's never truly going to be accepted because, you know, you've got the the second, the first and second estates are never going to look at him as anything other than just being a Corsican who just managed to get a, an education. That's not going to work. Um, here's an opportunity to absolutely remodel France and he gets to be a part of the building of a brand new nation. And hopefully if he can make his name here, then he can set himself up 
So I think yeah. a lot of a lot of his motivation was that he became friends with people big into the Jacobin cause, people such as Augustine Robespierre, who was the brother of Maximilien Robespierre, the name many might find recognisable if you know about French Revolution stuff. And he was also a, a friend of a man named Antoine Christophe Salicetti, a fellow Corsican who had gone all in with the French having been kicked out of Corsica. Other monarchies around Europe were shit scared about what was happening in France. This was a nation with a long established monarchy. It was one thing to have a colony rebel that could be squashed or hidden from the public. This was an all-out revolt on the homeland itself. This cannot be allowed to happen in other monarchies around Europe. Thus began the French Revolutionary Wars of 1792, where nations such as Great Britain, Austria and Prussia fought the newly established French Republic in an attempt to restore order and re-establish the monarchy. And let's, let's, um, let's continue to rub salt into this French wound for a bit, shall we? Um, France is in a state... France is in this state arguably because it helped America in its war for independence against the English. The monarchy that backed that war against the English for America's benefit is now relying on the English to settle their revolution and restore them to power. (laughs) (laughs) Then the final insult is that royalists down south are actively allowing for English troops to station themselves in Toulon to fight revolutionaries. Now, I imagine if you'd asked a Frenchman whilst they were supporting the Americans if they would ever allow an English military to be stationed on French soil, I imagine they would likely have spat their baguette in your face as they laughed their head off. Yet here we are. An English force is on French soil fighting for the rights of the French monarchy when literally like a decade earlier they hate each other. It's weird, isn't it? But it always comes full circle. You'll always come back to us. Well, I think it reminds me of like Batman and the Joker. You know in the Batman film with the Joker in it and he goes like, you complete me. Like, what would I... Yeah. I, I, don't want, I don't want to kill you. What would I ever do without you? He'd it's, be like, I'd be like a dog chasing cars. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the roadrunner and the coyote, isn't it? Like, they need each other, and the second one of them dies, the other one just loses all purpose. Yeah, so, like, as soon as the French monarchy's under threat, they're like, whoa, hold on a minute. That's mm. my that's my bitch. Like, I, no one else gets to fuck around with them. Now <laughs> I get to do... <laughs> um, so, yeah, the English went in to, like, protect the French monarchy and restore the king, King Louis XVI, but obviously it didn't do a very good job since Louis was decapitated by guillotine in 1793. They did, however, declare his eight-year-old son as king, who then died at the age of ten, having never ruled since he was imprisoned all of his time as king. But anyway, the English were now in Toulon, and Napoleon had his first real opportunity to establish himself as an officer in the revolutionary French army. In 1793, aged 24, which in the film he's obviously like a 50-year-old wacky phoenix. This, which is yeah, quite this funny. is the thing that really bothered me about <laughs> we'll it. We'll get on it later. We'll get on it. We'll yeah. get on it. <laughs> in 1793, aged 24, he was sent along with an artillery unit to dispatch the English forces. But along the way, he met with his buddy Salicetti, who had contacts and did him a favour. See, Napoleon didn't really fancy just being an officer under the command of someone else. So, having spoke with Salicetti... Napoleon was heading down to Toulon as an officer under the command of a man named Jean-Baptiste Cateau, 
but arrived in Toulon as the commander of the artillery. This was his moment. This was the first step in making the man we know today as Le Napoleon. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, Toulon. Let's talk about Toulon. Toulon has a natural harbour and is strategically important being on the Mediterranean coast. To have the port would mean that the English couldn't resupply and establish themselves on land, so Napoleon's job was to stop that at all costs and take the city. But for the most part, the movie portrays this quite well. When Napoleon reaches Toulon, he is aghast at how poor the troops look. Cateau, the commander of the military presence there, had established a blockade of the city, but that was pretty much pointless. See, the English had already set themselves up in several of the forts, and the harbour was still operational, so you can blockade a harbour all you like, but people are still getting fed because there's still food constantly coming in and out. Mm. What Napoleon walked in on was a bunch of poorly trained men in uniform lazing about waiting out the blockade run by officers who were mediocre at best. And Napoleon was pissed about this. So much so that he wrote back to his pals like Salicetti and made them uh, like sort of do something about it. He was like, you cannot expect me to follow these fucking men. These are twats, mate. I'm not like following orders from these guys. So they were like, okay, fine. We'll do something about it. So they sent a more experienced general down there and he was kind of old and kind of didn't want to be there so when napoleon turned up and was like oh amazing thank god look look here's all these things i think we should do what do you think and he was like do you know i can't be asked do you want to do it and he went yes yes i'll do it <laughs> fair enough <laughs> so he kind of let him run the show although he wasn't in charge right so this this old guy had a dude just below him so he was the right the real guy but he let mm. sort of napoleon just get on with whatever he wanted to do yeah so Napoleon then spent time reinforcing uh, his artillery. He had new cannons made. He had new cannonballs made. Um, he got, had men trained up over that time to make them all look fucking shit hot. And then when it was time, Napoleon's artillery fired cannon and mortars at one of the forts for a solid 48 hours to soften them up. And there was no let up, like two days straight just firing cannon at this fort. There was one particular fort that they were looking at, and it's the one that you'd see in the movie is what they're referring to, right? It's called Fort Leguiette. Fort Leguiette. And the way it's positioned is like, it's probably the best of all the forts there. You can see pretty much everything. If you can command like the cannon there, you can pretty much shoot everything within the bay uh, in the harbour and just dominate the area. Mm. 
So that's the one they focused on. Now, like I say, after after two days of just bombarding the shit out of it, Napoleon told the commanders that now I would recommend a strong infantry assault would be enough to finish the job. We can take the fort. I think we'll be good. But no. The commanders that he was talking to were still a bit hesitant. So they sent the first wave where thousands of men died storming the fort in the first wave. Likely pissed and seeing his work potentially being undone, Napoleon joins the second wave of infantry storming the fort. Now he's got no real business doing this, but to have an officer join you in the heat of battle is quite a rousing sight. So he got right into the thick of it. So much so that Napoleon was actually stabbed in the leg during the fight, which is not in the film. There was a genuine fear that his leg would be amputated. One doctor was like, yep, take it off. Take the leg. And he was terrified about this, right? That was standard practice for like any uh, limb wounds back then. It was just take it because honestly, it's not worth like you can't fix that. It's broken. It's fucked. It's going to get gangrenous. Just take it off. You'd be better off. But luckily for Napoleon, a second doctor assessed it and said that, nah, I think you'd be fine. You don't need an amputation. And luckily, he didn't. Now, I'm going to have a hot take there. I think if Napoleon had lost his leg at the Battle of Toulon, that would be it. We, we would not, Napoleon would not have become the man he is that we know today. Because mm-hmm. this guy would have just probably managed to get some form of a pension because he was an officer and he had yeah. some contacts. So he may have got a pension and a bit of a cushy life, but that would have been it. He, he wouldn't have become the man we know. Now, by the morning, with the French flag flying high above the fort, they'd completed their objective. They then turned their artillery onto the English ships in the harbour. Now, to stay in the harbour was suicide, so English ships had to flee, but many came under fire and were destroyed. In fact, most of the French fleet that was left there and being kept there by the English was also burnt, which is really bad. Now, Toulon was back in the hands of the French Republicans. Now, it's gone down in history as a monumental battle for Napoleon. And it really is. In terms of, like, strategic stuff and the way it moved and all the things that he did, like, it's... For him, this is top-tier shit. But the way that things were handled in Toulon is fucking bad, man. It's problematic at best. Like, things aren't always black and white. We know that we're doing this show. There's no such thing as good or bad anymore. And I won't go into too much detail. Like, I've not done with the battle. I'm not going to do it with many other battles. But while the French in the fort were firing on the harbour of Toulon, bear in mind, Napoleon is there at this point. He's helping direct fire. Um, Innocent civilians who are in the city near the harbour and the port, they're in the firing line. So thousands of Toulon citizens are clamouring to get onto the English ships that are trying to flee Toulon. Mm. So much... And and this is, I find, interesting. Again, just another tick while we're better. The English actually rescued 14,000 Toulon civilians and got them out of of Toulon whilst they were all being fired upon. That's impressive. It's quite interesting that they ran to the English as opposed to the French. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I don't think they really gave a shit. They were just like... But, again, sorry, I know we're... Right, for this guys, James and I have watched the film and we'll talk about it later. But in in the film, you see the English being absolute pricks to everyone. You know, it's yeah. like there's that guy walking with like goats and he's like, move those fucking goats or I'll shoot them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm sure there were racist knobheads at the time. But like, why would they take in 14,000 French civilians if they hated him that much and they really didn't give a shit? Like, yeah, come on. Just left. Yeah, just leave it. Now, when the French entered the city, once the English had sort of fled, Hundreds of civilians 
were indiscriminately murdered, either shot or stabbed by bayonet by soldiers just sort of storming the place. Like, that's your own French civilians, and that's happening. It's a bit weird, And a further seven to 800 people were murdered by the new French Republican regime because they thought they were, they were royalists. Right. It's just brutal. Just murdering now, people on a hunch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, to be fair, at this point, there is a thing called the terror happening, which is where like everyone was being guillotined left, right and centre. So yeah. we'll go into it another time. But that was happening. So it's probably like a, a, an offshoot of that. I do think it's important to note, though, Napoleon is not present at the massacre of Toulon. He's not there. He has been posted somewhere else. He's been treated for his leg that has been stabbed, and he's mm. been sent over to somewhere else um, in France called Nice, which is on the Italian border, I think. Now, for his efforts at Toulon, Napoleon was promoted to brigadier general and given the command of the artillery of the Army of Italy. Now, that last sentence may have confused you a little. Why is he the commander of an Italian army? Answer is, he's not. The French have a really weird way of naming their military sort of groups. They just seem to call them whatever it is the land they're in. So there would be like the uh, the army of Germany, army of Italy, army of this. So and it's just they're just areas, uh, military bits that operate in there. So the army of Italy is a French military uh, group that sole job is to conduct operations on Italian soil. Yeah. Now why? Are they on Italian soil, though? Well, Italy at the time was not like Italy we know today. It was made up of lots of republics and kingdoms. One of those was the Kingdom of Sardinia, who was ruled by King Victor Amadeus III. They were causing a ruckus on the French border. Seeing France behead a king and declare a republic, all the monarchies were quaking in their boots, especially those closest to France, like the Kingdom of Sardinia. They were looking for backup from the Habsburg Empire, which they eventually gave because Marie Antoinette is a family member of the Habsburg Empire. So when the French beheaded her, they were like, whoa, come yeah. on, bro. Not having that. Now, Napoleon was involved in battles on the Italian peninsula. This is not a military tactics podcast, though. So forgive me for not going into detail on all of his battles. Go watch Kings and Generals on YouTube for that. Instead, know that the siege of Toulon, followed by his campaign in Italy, meant that Napoleon was now a famous name. But that fame came at a price. Napoleon was known as a friend of Augustine Robespierre, brother of Maximilien Robespierre, the de facto ruler of Republican France, and under him the terror ensued, a period where the guillotine became famous. And as I said, we will do an episode on Maximilien Robespierre and the terror in future. Um will cover his decline and things like that. It's genuinely fascinating. But for the meantime, Robespierre brothers were declared traitors of the French Republic and met their end at the guillotine. Napoleon, as a friend of the brothers, was also deemed a traitor. He was locked up for two weeks whilst he protested his innocence. And eventually, lucky for him, he was deemed innocent of all charges, but the accusation was enough to seriously affect him. He was genuinely depressed at this situation, in fact, in a letter to his brother, he wrote, quote, If this continues, I shall end by not stepping aside when a carriage rushes past. Oh, dear. Just, yeah, he was fully like, yeah, man, I'll just step in front of a carriage. I don't care. <laughs> I don't give wow. a damn. Oh, it's a bit it's extra, in- isn't it? It is. A, it's, a, it's a little bit emo, isn't it? Like, <laughs> um, I watched uh, one, one of the documentaries I watched for uh, prep for this. 
it's like four hours long and i was like oh mm. bro okay i'm only halfway through um they were saying how because napoleon is actually in like this italian border uh fighting with the italian army the army of italy sorry in the french army of italy um he was lucky because he only got arrested and put away in prison for like two weeks whilst he was they were deeming his sort of guilt they yeah. were saying if if he had been in Paris when the Robespierre brothers were had their executions, they were like almost certainly he'd have been beheaded. Almost certainly mm. they wouldn't even bothered to like waste their time with a trial. It's because he was far away on the Italian French border that they decided to just you know they like they ain't got guillotines with them at the time. They need to figure out what's going on. So again, another brush with death. It's almost like fate had something in store for him. It's weird. Mm. Funny enough, Napoleon does call himself lucky quite a lot of the time in his career. Now, Sounds it. Yeah, he, yeah, massively. So, it got worse. He was demoted and made an officer in an infantry regiment, something that he's not an expert in, and he saw it for what it was, an absolute insult. So he rode into Paris demanding to speak with those in charge, where petty excuses like, Oh, you're too young to be in your position anyway. Why don't you stand aside and let your elders, you know, take the take the role and you'll come into your own eventually. But he was like, no, fuck off. I'm not having that. I'm not having that. Now this is bullshit. Um, he knew what was going on. They just didn't trust him still because he was accused of, you know, being a traitor. So they just don't trust him. But as far as Napoleon's concerned, he's the hero of Toulon. He's a military genius and he'll be damned if he's going to let anyone let his age be a factor. Get fucked. So he spoke with another guy who was more sympathetic to his plight. This guy did also believe that he should maybe step aside for a time, just to sort of, you know, you've done well so far, just take a step back, you'll have another opportunity. But I understand that being in the infantry is not a good fit for you. So instead, he moved him to the Bureau of Topography, which is basically a geography job, looking at maps and studying terrain. But mm. it, it meant he was based in Paris, where like the seat of power is. Everything's happening in Paris. And there, he would get opportunities to meet you know, influential people that know what they're doing. Napoleon wanted to be in the thick of battle. There he thought he would earn glory. There he thought he would make a name for himself. But fate had its own reason for putting Napoleon in the Bureau of Topography. Fate had decided that he was going to make his name in Paris instead. See, the French Republic is a couple of years old at this point, and it's not strong. It's still susceptible to rebellions, namely a heavily Catholic royalist mob. The Republic had an anti-Catholic stance, which pissed off a significant amount of Catholic Frenchmen. Hyped up to join in with a royalist cause, Paris found itself with an army of 25,000 royalists looking to overthrow the Republic. That's some serious numbers as well. Like, you know, if, you, if you, you've managed to give 25,000 people, if you saw that walking down London, you'd be like, yeah, this is a lot. Fuck this. That's a lot of people, yeah. Now, attempts from other generals were made to suppress the uprising, but to no avail. Instead, a man named Paul Barras met with Napoleon. They'd had brief run-ins before, but with Napoleon now based in Paris, he had a chance to be at several of Barras's parties. So he got to meet a few new people. They were aware of his name. He would, like, in the movie, be like, oh, I'm the guy who, you know, besieged and saved Toulon. They're like, oh, you're the guy. Cool. Nice to meet you. Cool, cool. Now, Barras knew of Napoleon's military skill in action and asked if he would give it a shot at quashing the rebellion. Napoleon accepted on only one condition. He would do it if he could do it his way and no one would stand in that way. And they went, yeah, fuck it, go for it. 
So Napoleon ordered that one of his officers to collect 40 cannons and had them strategically located around the place. When the royalists turned up, Napoleon and his men were heavily outnumbered at about 6 to 1, but he and his men stood firm. On his orders, the men fired their cannons at the royalists, firing grape shot into the crowd. Now, for context, grape shot is fucking terrifying. You can probably already guess what it is, but it's a cluster of small projectiles that are shot out of a cannon. It's basically a giant shotgun, but more terrifying. Mm. And it's seriously effective against ships, which is why it was a common sight on naval vessels. The spread of the shot would rip apart sails, decommissioning the ship. But as is typical with humans, we found out that it could be used to devastating effect on other humans primarily used on the battlefield, it would decimate lines of infantry as they walked towards your lines. It was a terrifying sight. Napoleon used this on French civilians. Call them what you like, rebellion or not, these are civilians. And Napoleon ordered that the men fire on them. Now, despite his horse being shot from underneath him, Napoleon was unharmed in the two-hour slaughter. When the smoke cleared, 400 civilians had been massacred, their body parts strewn all over the place. It would have been an absolutely horrific sight. But despite the slaughter, Napoleon was seen as a national hero. His name was known to all after this event, and even promoted him to the rank of general, and they gave him command of the entire French army of Italy. Aged only 26... Napoleon was one of the most famous people in France. Everybody wanted to know him. He had made it. He was wealthy, he was now powerful, and being friends with Barras meant that he was always out in public attending big parties. And it was at these big parties that Napoleon met a woman who would become his personal obsession. A woman named Josephine. And that, my friends, is where we will leave part one of our Napoleon story. Next week, uh, well, next week, I hope it's next week. Next time, uh, we will go on a little bit more about Napoleon's um, relationship with Josephine and how it's a bit weird and how maybe Napoleon was a bit of a cuck, if we're honest. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and we'll also look a bit more at um, how Na- Napoleon rises to become an emperor and some of his massive military campaigns and, and how he declined so, so quickly. Um, so yeah look forward to that on the next one so yeah that's part one James what do you think it's nice to get more context because I want to say this without spoiling the film but the film starts at a very specific point in time where it has provided absolutely zero fucking context to how we got at this point in time um, Mm. which is the death of Marie Antoinette and then uh, Toulon I think is one of the first thing we see yeah Um, and I'm not gonna I, I went into the movie like I know kind of about Napoleon. I'm not an expert, but I can kind of follow events loosely. Um, and it, I just fucking struggled. So how people who go in there expecting maybe to learn something, they would have really struggled. So it's nice, it's nice to get context as to how we got from his birth to that starting point of the film. Yeah, for sure. Um, when so we we i saw it on the day it came out james you saw it literally the day after um and we we sent voice notes to each other saying like you know what did you think and um 
one one thing that we sort of collectively agreed on was just like um the context of things just being like i don't really get what's going on so like one thing I really wanted with obviously when we was doing this show, this episode was just like, you know, try to understand a bit more about the world that he's in and, you know, why things are happening. Um, why don't we, 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 we obviously we, we've seen the film now. Why don't we take sort of the next couple of minutes to sort of just talk about what we think of the film, maybe without spoilers, because we don't want to ruin part two, obviously. Um, but yeah, 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 we'll, we'll discuss sort of general um, feelings. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, one thing we both collectively agreed upon was just like, this makes no fucking sense. The way, I think I said it in a voice note to you, the way, all the way through, I was like, it's like someone gave Ridley Scott or whoever wrote this, just a list of events, but only the titles of the events of what happened and gave him no context as to what, like how it happened, why it happened. And Ridley Scott looked at it and went, you know what? We're going to do it all. We're going to do every single one, but we're going to spend like three minutes on each one. Mm. And then yeah. the one thing that the thing that bothered me the most is the transitions between scenes. Uh, scenes like you know when it just flashes white and then you're in a new scene. Like that to me is such lazy filmmaking because you've been mm. like, okay, we're done with this scene now. Let's get on to the next one. There's no like through line. There's no fucking story. It's it's so weirdly bizarre. And also like you mentioned earlier, Joaquin Phoenix is a fantastic actor, one of the best on the planet, I think. And I think the way he was directed, he portrayed Napoleon well. I think I thought he was a bit of a little bitch in the film, but it was acted <laughs> it was acted well. Um why they didn't get someone of the age is a mystery because also, this man looked old. Yeah, this is the thing. Like I said, at the siege of Toulon, he's like 24, right? And this is Joaquin Phoenix as a fifty odd year old man now, and he's just—they've not done any. They've not done anything. I think they've given him some long hair, um, and they make him wear the hat in a sort of way that kind of partially covers his face a little bit more. But like, this is clearly a fifty-year-old dude playing a twenty-odd year old man, young man at the like yeah. peak of his age, the peak of his fitness. That levels like this is a very young, athletic. It like really wants to do everything, young man. Um, all that you know de-aging techniques are so prevalent now like they're so they're everywhere and now or the just only cast I can someone think of, of age yeah cast someone of age or de-age like um Joaquin phoenix because like i if i picture him in gladiator as in napoleon that in is film, what the age should him. have been yeah, yeah yeah and he would have been perfect i to be fair when i was in um rome I, the only like guided tour i did was at the coliseum and of palatine hill and forum and I asked the guy, like, what did you think of Gladiator? Because obviously the film is bollocks. Maximus didn't exist. If you go back to our Spartacus episode, you can kind of see the inspiration. But Commodus, who Joaquin Phoenix plays, was a real emperor and he was a gladiator. That was sort of... And, and she was like, obviously the events didn't happen. But once you ignore all of that, his portrayal of Commodus was incredibly good. And it probably was what he was like. Like just a whiny little mm. bitch who wanted to be the best, but he wasn't. Yeah. But then he yeah. was never ki- he yeah. wasn't killed in the Colosseum. But anyway, that's besides the point. Yeah, he would have been now, good at that age in Napoleon. Yes, yeah, yeah, you're you're right. And in terms of like you said, like you felt that they made Napoleon a bit of a bitch <laughs> in the film. Um, I don't know what Napoleon was like as a human, like as a person with the doors are closed. How does he talk to just a, a, you know his girlfriend or a mum? Like, how do, I don't know how he does that. I don't think many people do. Ridley Scott's main like defense of his film is, well, you don't know, you weren't there. So like, okay, no, fine, but we've got like enough 
documents and letters of like eyewitnesses and stuff like that from him and friends to like have a very good idea of what he may have been like and on on that on that basis alone we can kind of like put some form of personality to him but in the film like he makes like you know stupid noises like animal noises to josephine and when he wants to have sex with her he's going like you're like what are you doing i mean i mean if we're being honest the film is about him and josephine who we'll get onto in part two that is the the main part of the film their relationship if if you're going in there wanting history and napoleon in battles and stuff you're going to be sorely disappointed oh for sure this is napoleon if it was a soap opera yeah yeah Yeah. it really is i just it really missed the mark for me and i was so upset because it's directed by the guy the gladiator similar cast alien and you're just like this has and Napoleon is one of the most iconic figures of all time. I know he's French and we've bashed them, but like game's gotta recognise game. He was fucking good at what he did. Yeah. And they just they just made him look weak. I've I've read reviews of like French people are up in arms about it, being like, This is an awful film and I think they have every right to be because they've made one of their greatest ever people look like a fucking little bitch. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't get that with like any of the Winston Churchill films that have been out of No. Like, like it all makes him look like an absolute Don. <laughs> it's, I think in the first scene, you just see the guy having a panic attack. Yeah, now I, I, he's having a panic attack just before the siege of Toulon, isn't he? Where he's standing there waiting to run into the into the into the fray. Now I'm sure there may have been a, a moment of hesitation for him where he's like, "Oh God, like okay, this is because this is the first this is the first time he's like run." with yeah. an infantry guys like into a thick of a battle so i imagine there was a bit of oh god oh god oh god um but they really ham it up in the in the film like he's mm. terrified and I, I get it i get it yeah that makes sense yeah. uh i'm not a, i'm not a fan i mean in fact to be fair we um shall i put shall i put our voice notes in at the end of the at the end of this so yeah go for you it can, yeah, why not? So, yeah why not so um guys you're gonna hear our voice notes literally like reactions from having left the cinema like five minutes ago and um what we think of the show so uh you can hear that now uh i have just left the cinema sat in my car uh having just watched napoleon film um obviously spoiler free although you know most people know what happens anyway um i won't talk too much about the film or anything but just like my quick overview of what i think um i'm a bit i feel a bit let down by it if i'm honest i don't quite know what the point of the film was and what ridley scott wanted to do with it um i think the problem with these massive biopics like historical biopics as well is that there's so much to cover and you can't do all of it. So you try and do the big hits, but you can't cover them all entirely because that's even that, even that is too big. So you end up just doing snippets of bits without much context and you end up just watching it going, what? How did you get there? Why did that happen? Now, obviously, I've done fucking loads of research on it. So I'm sitting there um, watching it being like, ah, yeah. Yeah, I know where this is going. I know where that's going. I know that. No, I know that name. That's that name hasn't shown up. Okay, that's interesting. And like, I get it, and I can follow it. But like, if you know nothing about it, yeah, man, this film is like tricky for you to watch. You've no idea how he becomes emperor or even why, really. Like, there's no explanation for anything, really. It's just like 
and then this happens uh, and then we cut to the next bit and something new and totally different unrelated to what just happened is now happening and then it sells itself on the battles and they're a big letdown in my opinion um visually the film is stunning I can't get over how beautiful the whole thing is. I want to dress up in the costumes for the rest of my life. That's how I want to dress now forever. Um, but, yeah, it's all a bit of a letdown. And then there's just, like... I think, really, they're just saving themselves for, like, this one big bit at the end. Um, and that's really all they wanted to sort of do. And at that point, you think, we well, might as well have just done a film on that bit that you were just really focusing on. Because even that um, is just sped up everything everything's just too quick it's too fast nothing's explained it just expects you to just get on with it and i can i can see why a lot of historians would have had it would have had an issue with this film and will have an issue with this film and why a lot of people will watch this and just don't get it um which is a bit of a shame if i'm honest however uh, did i enjoy it i don't know I, I feel like it was it was okay it was all right would i pay to go see it again no um, would I watch it again? Probably not. If it was on, I'd have it on in the background because I know there's some good bits and it's visually quite stunning. So I'd have it on, but I probably wouldn't choose to watch it again, which is a bit of a shame, which is a good job that we're going to do a podcast properly. <laughs> we're gonna, well, yeah, we'll get to it. But Like, it just doesn't make any fucking sense, does it? Like, the film just doesn't make sense. As I was watching it, the only way I could describe it was is if someone gave Ridley Scott or whoever wrote it a list of events, but provided zero fucking context about what happened in any of these things. And he just went, you know what? We're gonna have a we're gonna have a go at putting all of these in. And he just spent like three minutes on every, like massive events. Battle of Waterloo, obviously they gave a bit more time to, of course you have to. And I thought that battle was cool, don't get me wrong. I thought the film visually great. Um, performances were good. Uh, I th- it was entertaining. I wasn't like bored, but like, like you said, like, God help if you go in and watch it without any sort of prior knowledge of anything that happened, because it just doesn't fucking explain anything, does it? It's, it's when they, like, got to Egypt, and one sentence was, oh, I took Italy. What do, what do you mean, oh, I took Italy? You don't just, oh, I took Italy. It's, I'm so... I don't know. It's, it just felt lazy. It just felt like they made the film for the sake of making it look good. Which I know I've always been on the side of historical films don't have to be like documentaries or massively accurate. Like, fine. But at least have a fucking go. Like, and like, I know that he was a massive romantic and he fucking adored Josephine. And I'm not sure, but I hope that, you know, all the letters they sent to each other, I hope they were like the real letters because that would be cool. Like, that part, fine. And if he wants to focus on the romance of it all, absolutely go for it. But I just thought they portrayed Napoleon as a bit of a fucking bitch. Like, all the way through, I was like, this kid's... Like, he's a fucking child. He's just, like, a little bit... He was one of the greatest tacticians of all time. And I don't really feel like that came across. I don't know. It just felt like... It just felt like a mess. It just felt like the whole thing was a fucking mess. And they didn't know what they wanted to do. So they just had a go at doing everything. And they did it all half assed I wouldn't watch it again. I, I didn't enjoy that, to be honest with you. Like, it, yeah, it was some parts entertaining, but I just, all the way through, I was like, when's the Battle of Waterloo? Let's just get to Waterloo and get this over with. 
Um, yeah, just didn't give a fuck about it. And the way he died, I thought it was fucking stupid. So, yeah, I'm not overly impressed. So, yeah, I think it's pretty clear that we're, we're not, we feel a bit let down by the film. <laughs> I just, yeah, I won't, like you said, I won't see it again. I won't actively seek it out to watch it again whereas nah. i don't know why i keep comparing it to gladiator i will always seek out gladiator to watch it again like when i was in the coliseum i played the soundtrack because of that how iconic that fucking film is mm. how did they mess it up so badly it's such a shame it's, it's like the alexander the great film you have one of the most important men in history and you make such a shit film it's so sad mm. yeah Okay, right. Well, um, thank you very much for listening. Make sure you join us over on Patreon. As I say, we've got some bits over there. You've got our interview with um, uh, Terry Wade talking about Jack the Ripper, which really was fun to do. Uh, we've got, uh, what else have we got? Our documentary on the Hammersmith nude murders, which is Jack the Stripper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going to get for all the Jack, all the Jacks. We love all the Jacks. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, you've got James's documentary of him being in Italy uh, coming soon, and then my... Uh, uh, visit to Auschwitz coming up in January so quite a lot to look forward to um, remember if you want to you can head over to Patreon and you can vote on future episodes that we do, uh, you can talk to us in a bit more directly um, and yeah head over there support the show, help us create new cool interesting things, um, what else have I got join us on socials and uh, yeah I think that's everything, anything from you James let us know, if you've seen the film let us know what you thought because maybe yeah. we're just being really picky about it but I, I, I feel like there's egg on my face to be honest with you because I fought to the death last episode about why films don't need to be historically ac- uh, accurate and I just feel like Ridley Scott completely did me dirty because yeah. there's not being historically accurate which is fine and then there's just not even trying yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah anyway we'll get as we go through part two whenever we record that and we get to certain events I'll tell you how I thought that was portrayed in the film most of it will not be complimentary yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot coming up. We've got uh, we're talking about Napoleon in Egypt. Uh, we've yeah. got uh, the Battle of Waterloo. We've got lots, lots and lots and lots to cover. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's brilliant it's stuff. Be good. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.